Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Gren Zone. So with everything going on with COVID-19, we've decided to break from our traditional content in order to give dermatology providers information and guidance during these troubling times. We will do our best to summarize and combine the recommendations provided by the CDC, WHO, and the AAD into concise and practical episodes for dermatology providers. In today's episode, we'll start with a brief discussion on the basics of COVID-19 infections and then get an interview with board-certified dermatologist Dr. Krishnamurthy, where he'll discuss common concerns such as the use of biologics and how dermatologists are currently shifting their practices in terms of who they are seeing in the office, who they are telling to stay home, and the role of telemedicine with all of this. And with this ever-changing landscape, we also want to start the conversation and brainstorm what we can do as a specialty to help out during this pandemic, such as having emergency departments triage lacerations and skin infections to us rather than crowding up their ERs. I also want to start this off by mentioning we are not the CDC or the AAD. We are simply doing our best to summarize what is currently known. We have included links in the episode show notes for easy access to the current recommendations from these organizations. Another thing to keep in mind is the lack of peer-reviewed materials material on the subject due to the acuity of this pandemic. Some of the information we present may be derived from sources like MedArchive, where researchers can post findings while their work is going through the peer review process. So, if you're new to the Grand Zone podcast, thanks for listening, and you will see that we like to keep our content as informative and concise as possible. We also like to keep the content fun with a little comedic relief from a slew of fictional attendings such as Dr. Grumpy Pants. So, before we get into a great interview with Dr. Krishnamurthy, we'll run through some basics of COVID-19 with everyone's favorite dermatology attending, Dr. Grumpy Pants. And before we jump in, I'll mention our disclaimer, that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. Let me get this straight. You want me to uproot my entire practice for a virus named after a mediocre brewski? I know your generation. You'd say anything for an extended spring break. So you better provide me with some evidence about this virus, you steaming little pustule. What is its incubation period? How is it spread? What are the symptoms? Come on now. COVID-19, which stands for Coronavirus Disease 2019, is caused by a virus named Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, or SARS Coronavirus 2. According to the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, there are currently over 311,000 worldwide cases, with the U.S. having 26,000 confirmed cases and 340 deaths. We're still learning a lot about this virus every day, but let's spend just a couple minutes on what we do know about it. The incubation period, which refers to the length of time between exposure and the start of symptoms, ranges from 2 to 14 days, with the majority starting 4 to 5 days after exposure. The spread of the virus is similar to that of the flu with droplet transmission, which means that the virus is released up to 6 feet away when an infected person coughs, sneezes, or talks. Say it, don't spray it, pal! 
The viral particles in these droplets can also live up to 72 hours on plastic surfaces, so a person can touch that surface and then self-inoculate themselves by touching their eyes, nose, or mouth. For these reasons, people need to stay socially distant at least six feet apart from strangers, practice good hand hygiene, disinfect commonly touched surfaces such as door handles, and avoid self-inoculation by avoiding touching your face. And just a practical tip, if you're a person that suffers from seasonal allergies, get those non-sedating antihistamines on board to help prevent you from touching your face, such as rubbing your eyes, blowing your nose, etc. And as far as COVID-19 infectivity goes, about 1-5% to of close contacts of infected patients develop COVID-19 themselves in one study. The signs and symptoms are similar to the flu, with fevers, fatigue, loss of appetite, dry cough, shortness of breath, and body aches. Less common symptoms include headache and GI involvement with nausea and diarrhea. It's important to keep in mind that one study showed that fever was present in only 44% of patients on admission, but eventually it developed in around 90% of those patients while they were hospitalized with COVID-19. So we can't simply rely on fever as a marker of disease. The shortness of breath from COVID-19 may also take up to a week or longer to develop after initial symptoms start. As far as severity goes, another study of Chinese COVID-19 patients showed that around 80% of cases were mild, 15% of cases were severe with shortness of breath, hypoxia, and greater than 50% lung involvement on imaging, and then 5% of cases were critical with respiratory failure and shock. Uh, if what you're saying is true, things could get pretty rough around here. I suppose I'll use this scenario to teach you yet another lesson. Even the most experienced and proficient physicians need advice or help at times. In times like these, you need someone you can rely on. Someone capable that you can trust. For me, that is Dr. Karthik Krishnamurthy, former president of the American Osteopathic College of Dermatology, an old rival and a better friend. He's done it all from hospital-based dermatology to private practice. And one thing we always agreed on was the importance of educating the next generation and excellent patient care above all else. It's time I give him a call. If what you're saying is true, the panic button should have been pressed a long time ago. Hello, my old friend. Dr. Grumpy Pants. Still making your pupils as miserable as yourself? I'm afraid I am. But I tell you, this generation deserves it. <laughs> Perhaps. What can I do for you, Archie? Is it the end of the world, or are my residents overreacting as usual? I think it's hard to tell. Not the end of the world, but definitely time to act. Okay, so what is our specialty doing with this situation? So basically, we should think about this in terms of private clinics versus hospital-based medicine. I think for hospital-based medicine, we're still doing urgent and stat and patient consults, you know, with all the PPE guidelines that are out there. But we're not going to be going in for routine non-admission-related consults. Um, a lot of hospital clinics that are physically in the hospital have to physically be shut down and move towards telederm because patients physically can't get into the hospital because they're limiting the amount of visitors and the foot traffic through there. A lot of the private offices are starting to limit their in-office appointments really to just urgent skin cancers, infections, abscesses, and maybe new onset acute rashes. 
this really varies geographically because some locales are being hit harder than others. And so there's going to be a lot of local mandates, state mandates that are going to vary state to state. For example, what's going on in New York and California is very different than what's going on in Florida, where I am. Uh, they're really moving much more towards things like lockdown and shelter in place and very, very much limiting patients' access um, to really leave the house, even for things like routine medical care. But here in Florida, our medical association has been working closely with the governor's office. And the only real thing they're recommending is not to do cosmetic or elective surgeries. But again, it's locale by locale. The American Academy of Dermatology is recommending that any patients scheduled for non-essential or elective services be rescheduled or seen via telemedicine. However, essential, urgent, and high acuity cases should still be treated in the office. And I think this will also help alleviate the influx of these patients going into acute care facilities because they're going to be exposing themselves to the same place that people who suspect they have the flu or coronavirus are going. And so we really want to keep these patients out of those high-risk areas if we can. I mean, even in, in one um, office that I work in, a couple primary cares and the pulmonologist is, you know, closed down. And so I think we're getting the message that it's time to maybe open back up and be available for these patients. We just have to find new ways to do it. So you mentioned remaining open for urgencies. What are some of the arguments against closing up shop altogether and giving our residents their spring fling? Oh, they would love that. <laughs> they really would. But I do think we can do our part, like I said a couple seconds ago, in helping keep unnecessary people out of the ED where they're at higher risk for exposure as long as we take the correct precautions in our office. We need to remain open for those urgencies, but also maybe send messages to patients that maybe their eczema or their acne can wait or move those towards telemedicine. And I'll tell you what we're doing um, to try to help implement that in a second. But again, we need to be available so that our patients don't go to the ER for their triamcinolone refill. Dr. G, I'm not one to panic, but I don't know what to tell these people. Gosh darn it, Bethany, can't you see I'm on the phone? It is a good question, though. Dr. Krishnamurthy, what are you telling your patients? So I can just tell you some of the things that we're doing, what some of my colleagues are doing. And the first thing that we're doing is that employees that can work from home need to be working from home. Things people in your billing department, um, even people that are doing patient phone calls, refills, referrals, um, you know, your nurse callback visits, all of those things can really be done from home. And so we should be able to give those um, employees the ability to work from home and do those things from home. You know, they're going to need a little bit of the infrastructure. So they're going to need EMR at home. Obviously, they're going to need internet access at home. So you have to identify the correct employees that, hey, you know what? Maybe this employee was going to stay home anyway because they are taking care of their child who's now not in school for the next month and they can work from home. And so being really smart about identifying what your staff needs are also and then being able to support them, they're just as scared as we are. And a lot of physicians are going to be able to weather this financially, but a lot of our, our staff are are really, really scared right now until we have a little bit more information about about things that are out there. So the first thing we need to do is take an inventory of our employees who can work from home, who needs to work from home, and see whether we can still support them that way. I think another thing is that we're going to start seeing some of our employees needing to stay at home and not being able to work or being sick themselves or taking care of a sick person. And so that may actually, and a lot of people are worried about um, having to thin out their staff during these times if there's not going to be enough work. But I think some, we're all in the same boat. I think some of these things are going to work themselves out. We don't have to beat ourselves up 100% over this, but I, I think we're all thinking the same thing. We're all in the same boat. We're all evaluating the same things, and I'm very confident we're going to get through this. Oh, goodness. If I send Sally home with an office iPad, I'll never see it again. So what else are you telling them? Well, I think it's really important that we script our staff. You know, you can't walk by your desk nurse and 
have her repeat something back into the phone, like telling a patient to discontinue their biological immunosuppressant without scripting them. They're not going to know what to do. We have to give them as many scripts as possible. So last week, I created a biologic script. And it really, um, this was before Dr. Lovewell's um, webcast, which I'll talk about in a minute and I'll direct you towards. But uh, I basically told patients that they were not to stop their biologics. Maybe if they were 65 and older, this was my own recommendation, that if they really, really felt strongly about it and were not going to be able to put themselves on lockdown for some of the more immunosuppressive medications, then they wanted to discontinue it. They can't, but I warned them about um, the risk of flare or that the patient may not get the same response upon reinitiation. But it's a very, very um, succinct script that the nurse can read back to the patient. And I will tell you, I don't have one patient that discontinued their medication over this, as long as there's a script and everyone's saying the same thing. And I will be posting that on the learndermpodcast.com website for anyone to use if they would like it. Another thing that I think is nice, a nice script for the for the staff is when they're calling back patients or when patients are calling in, say, to make a new appointment and they have not been seen in your office before and so you don't have an established relationship with them, a nice question to ask them if they really, really need to really assess if they need that appointment is to say something like, dear Mr. So-and-so, if I'm not able to give you an appointment, are you going to, do you think this is enough of an emergency that you're going to seek care elsewhere? And if the answer is yes, that means the patient is really, really, really worried and that is someone that I will accept as an in-office patient. Excellent suggestions, I must say. So what else are you implementing? So I think it's really, really important to just be organized. Otherwise, we're just all going to be in a frenzy. The office staff's going to be in a frenzy. Just keep yourself organized. So the first thing that I recommend people to do is to start consolidating your schedule. Be proactive. It's a, you know, use your weekend time, use your evening times. If you have to pay staff a little bit extra or repurpose staff to do this because your office visitor, you don't want to be seeing a patient at 8 and then have a gap for three hours, and then seeing a patient, and you know, you don't want to be doing. You want to be calling the patients proactively, consolidating them, because then when you start implementing telehealth, you're going to want to have reserve time. You're not going to want to go from an from an in-office room appointment to a telehealth visit to an in-office room appointment. Consolidate your patients to the morning if you can, and then open up your afternoon for Q15 minute telehealth visits, because you are probably going to need about 15 minutes um, between you know, uh, glitches and patients trying to figure out how to, um, how to use the services. Uh, right now, it, it's kind of a good time to be doing this because the government has really, and, and HIPAA, the OCR, have really released um, the use of almost any platform. Now, some insurance companies are going to be rolling out their own platforms for telehealth, but you can literally use FaceTime, Skype, or whatever other video, audio, chat um, is available to you. Um, you just have to inform your patient that it may not be HIPAA compliant, but it is allowed and you're not going to get in trouble for it. I think as long as we're doing the right thing, you're not being neglectful. I don't think there's really much ways for us to get in trouble or have a lot of liability during, you know, an emergency like this. Um, I think that if we're, you know, still doing Botox and filler, I think that's where your liability is. But other than that, as long as you're doing the right thing by your patients, I think that we really don't need to worry about liability issues right now. I would recommend getting a, another email account or using a work email account that is not your normal work email account to register um, with, uh, uh, you know, uh, FaceTime and Skype uh, so that, you know, you have a, a separate sort of account. I recommend still doing this from in the office if possible, just because of, you know, cyber hacking and all those other things. You're probably going to be best covered with your liability if you're doing it over your over your protected internet at your office, as opposed to the internet at your home that your neighbor is possibly stealing off of. Um, it's true. Um, I steal my neighbors all the time. <laughs> And so, you know, I know, I know a lot of people are worried about telehealth, but I think that if you just keep yourself organized, the first thing I'd say is 
take a staff member, one, if you're in a group, if you're not in solo practice, and have them sort of work out the kinks and iron them out. Have them do the schedule for you know half a day. Let's open up their schedule for all the patients that we're offering telehealth visits for. One of the one of the really really interesting things is we in dermatology we don't necessarily have to auscultate. I mean we do have to palpate, and I think that that's important. But a lot of the times we can evaluate the skin visually. I mean, how many blurry texts do you get from your, you know, friend's cousin's aunt all the time? You know, they have a perfectly pixelated, uh, wonderful, high-definition Instagram post, but it's like the blurriest seborrheic keratosis in the entire world. So getting, working through those kinks, and get, we, we, we can still evaluate over, over audio video, I think. And so converting one person to do that, working out the kinks, and then I think soon we're going to see that this may even become the new norm. And the reimbursement rates are exactly the same for the office visit. Um, it's the same codes. It's just a different modifier for um, Medicare. The modifier is GQ, I believe. And for uh, commercial insurance, the modifier is going to be 95. The AED has a fantastic PDF um, for what codes to bill and what, what satisfies those requirements. And we're going to put a link to that on learndermpodcast.com so you can use that, Archie. And um, honestly, one of the great things about this waiver is we can evaluate new patients this way too. With the old telemedicine rules, or the, the, the without this waiver, you could only do an established patient and they had to do telemedicine not from their home but from an originating site. All of those rules have been relaxed and we're not going to be audited on those. And so you can do a new patient visit um, and it can be from the, the patient's home. The only thing is the patient needs to initiate the visit. That rule is still in place. And so, you know, you can't FaceTime the patient or Skype the patient. The patient has to do it to you, but you're allowed to call them and set them up with that time. So again, scripting your staff. Hi, I see you canceled your appointment for acne. However, we could still accommodate you via telehealth at 1.15 this afternoon. Here is the call-in number. The doctor or the or your provider will be waiting for you. I think that's just another really great script. Now, some of our older patients, I really, really think, are going to have some trouble with technology. And so for that, we have telephone codes and telephone office visits. They certainly reimburse less, but we're still doing the right thing by the patient, medication refills, check-ins, things like that. For Medicare, it's called a virtual check-in, and that's a G2012 code. And the telephone codes for commercial insurance are in the 9942 series, um, and those are just called telephone visits. Um, I think that we are going to see some denials coming from insurance companies as they wrap their head around this. They're just scrambling just like everybody else. I wouldn't take it as the end of the world. Yes, it may be a little extra work to chase that um, reimbursement down in the long run, especially early adopters of telemedicine. I just think that everyone's still trying to catch up. So I would give them a little bit of leeway on that. But I will also say that any denials or, or patterns that you're seeing, you should uh, let the people at the AAD know there's somebody there that's collecting that information because they're going to really be the biggest advocates for getting us reimbursed for the services that we're providing during this difficult time. And so just keep them in the loop. I also think, you know, don't fill every single liquid nitrogen canister that you have up in the office. And if you have to fill them up, fill one up twice a day, then fill one up twice a day. Put it on a holster because we don't know. Supplies may be in in short availability and you want to you don't know when the next time that liquid nitrogen um, delivery person is going to be able to come and give you the liquid nitrogen that you need. So really, really, really conserve it. Oh, Karthik, I've been bashing those vexatious cellular devices since their inception. Now you're telling me I need to see patience with it? What has become of our world? Please, give me some guidance on this one. You know, Archie, unfortunately, I think this is going to be the new normal. 
I think this is also going to prove to be a proof of concept going into the future of, as to how much perhaps we can be doing via telemedicine. Like I said, the reimbursement rates um, currently are the same under these new relaxed rules um, for being able to see new patients and not having to be from a rural or originating site. But we may end up doing a proof of concept study inadvertently by converting to telehealth in medicine. And this may be the new norm. So it's better to get ahead of it than behind it. We may actually find that we really, really like it. So what you're saying is I do my visit as normal through Insta Facebook, document my visit as normal, but simply mention that it was done via telehealth, and then I bill it using the normal office codes with a 95 or GQ modifier? That's pretty much correct. The only thing you're billing uh, people are going to have to do is add a POS code or a point of service code. It's probably not something that is available to the providers on their super bills or in EMR, but they can be added on the in the billing software. And they have to put a POS code as 02, and that actually signifies that the visit was done via telehealth. Dr. Grumpy, this lady wants to know if she should stop her injection for her psoriasis. What are we telling these people? Another good question for my old friend. So first, I just want to tell you, I do speak for AbbVie, Janssen, and Regeneron, Sanofi, Genzyme, but that is not going to change my answer to you at all. I'm really just going to echo the notes from, you know, Dr. Lovewell's conversation on, on the Fall Clinical Health website, which is uh, available, and we're going to put a link on LearnDermPodcast.com if you want to watch it. It's available on demand. Um, and also, a colleague of ours, John Kelly III, is associate professor at UConn. Um, has generously shared a beautiful chart summarizing Dr. Lubwell's webcast, and he's allowing us to make it available at LearnDermPodcast.com for everyone to use. And there'll be a link to the website if you want to watch the webcast from there on demand, like I said. But basically, we're sort of stratifying uh, patients into orals and injectable biologics, okay? So first, you have to think about it that way. So, you know, sort of draw an algorithm. If you're on an oral medication, then we're talking about prednisone, cyclosporine, methotrexate, Cellcept, and the JAK inhibitors, we find those to be the moderate, the more moderate to high risk. And we should really, if the patient really, really needs those medications, um, which I think the majority of patients we have on them do need them and discontinuation is going to cause some sort of flare of their pemphigus or whatever they have. That's why we have them on them. They should really, really put themselves on lockdown. They should really shelter down themselves. Um, and and I, I, I'm not even sure social distancing is enough for those patients. They really should put themselves on lockdown during this time. Um, and, and I think that echoes the recommendation. Now, when you look at the injectable biologics, for the most part, we are not stopping our patients on injectable biologics um, for this outbreak unless they start to show symptoms. My wife is a rheumatologist, and in rheumatology, they're doing the same thing. They're not stopping these patients because the risk of not recapturing those patients is is greater and the disease flare burden to them is greater, at least in rheumatology, than it is to than, than it is for the fear of catching something, especially if you're practicing social distancing. Now, for TNF-alpha inhibitors and the IL-1223 inhibitor, ustekinumab, we're sort of thinking if this, if this is a patient that's a candidate for switching to something that's in the IL-17 or the IL-23 um, <clears throat> modifying pathways, then maybe this is a good time to do that. But there are even some trials of using adalimumab and IL-17 inhibitors in Europe right now as a treatment for all the acute inflammation that people are seeing with the pneumonitis associated with, ad, with, um, with this coronavirus. So I, so I just think it's really, really interesting. So I think for the orals, um, almost all of them across the board, except for um, a premolast, we're telling patients that they should really sort of be protecting themselves aggressively. For the TNF and the ustekinumabs, we're going to switch those patients if we can. Otherwise, we're going to tell them to be under moderate precautions. But for the other biologics and for acid retin, we're leaving these patients on it. And then dupilumab is in its own class. It's not uh, immunosuppressive in this Th1, Th17 pathway, which is our, really our viral fighting 
um, pathway. And so dupilumab is not thought to really be immunosuppressive and we don't have to really worry about it. In fact, there's some, there's even some theoretical, um, some theory out there that because we're really more blocking the Th2 pathway, those patients may even have a ramped up Th1 pathway to help fight the virus and may give them some protection. So I think that that's really interesting. And so you mentioned this before, but what are the insurance vipers saying about all of this? Well, I think they're just trying to get their act together. And I think we're going to see some denials. And I would pass those on to the AAD so that we can really be united about, you know, uh, fighting for ourselves, advocating for ourselves and, and getting paid for the services that we're providing during this difficult time. Uh, but again, you know, they're very large companies. They've got a lot of mechanisms um, inside, a lot of red tape. And so I could see how it could be difficult for them to sort of wrap their head around it. But I, I do know that there is a demand. And, uh, and I think that they're all going to follow suit. I can't imagine any, I mean, the majority of insurance companies have already announced that they're going to be supporting this. So if you're, if you're an insurance company that's, that's at the sidelines and not doing this right now, you're going to get really get called out. So I don't think anybody wants to get called out. I think they're all going to jump on board. I have to thank you, Dr. Krishnamurthy. With any luck, I'll see you on the other side, only to embarrass you at the next residency Jeopardy party. <laughs> you wish. Listen, I think that during this emergency, as long as we do the right thing and in the best interest of the public and the patients, I don't think we need to worry about too much about liability issues. Like I said, as long as we make good decisions, we're not being neglectful. Um, and you're not going to beat me at Jeopardy. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining today. So if you're looking for more information, please go to the show notes attached to this episode or learndermpodcast.com where you'll find the links that we've previously referred to. I want to thank Dr. Grumpy Pants and Dr. Krishnamurthy for helping out today. I also want to thank my brother Garrett for his hard work with the post-production to get this episode out to you all ASAP. And I want to thank Thomas and the Shakes for their musical support. Since this is our first episode addressing COVID-19, please send us your feedback on Instagram, Facebook, or via email at learndermpodcast at gmail.com so that we can make this content as helpful as possible for you. If you have any other thoughts or ideas that you want to reach the masses with, send them our way and we'll try to include them in the next episode, which we'll be planning on getting out to you in the next week depending on how the landscape changes. All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com and that's with two Z's, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. You know, I've been practicing for 40 years, and I've never seen anything quite like this. You almost have to admire the virus. One billionth our size, and it's kicking our ass. Rest assured, though, we will make it through. We always do. We just have to have a little faith, step up, and stick together. Now let's get off our asses and get to work. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grenzone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.